0: Hola amigos, me llamo Ricardo y estáis escuchando el podcast de Shelly, Bella y Bryce. El raro, loco y maravilloso. ¡Hasta luego!
1: Hi everybody and welcome to episode 58 of the Weird, Wacky and Wonderful Stories podcast.
2: Hi everybody.
1: Bella, your voice sounds terrible. What's happened to you? You got a bit of laryngitis or tonsillitis going on there? <laughs> oh, you're funny, aren't you? <laughs> As you'll probably hear, we've got young Brycey with us today. Hi, he doesn't let me call him here. Brycey. i got a kick under the table and the dog squeaked her toy. <laughs> we got Bryce with us today because Bella has had to work, so you're stuck with the young man today. And Bryce is here too. Oh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> sure. So we got a uh, thank you to make first of all, and that is to Ricardo, who has left us that amazing intro. Thank you very much. It's all in Spanish, as you could probably hear. And I'm sure it, what he was actually saying was, Shelley's amazing. He definitely makes this podcast, and we're glad to have him on here. Welcome <laughs> to the show. I'm pretty sure that's what it
2: said. Clearly. <laughs>
1: I love having you here because you don't argue with me the way your mum does. You just like just agree. Yeah, okay, there's fine. no point. <laughs> okay, so don't forget if you want to send us an intro, you can. All you got to do is record it on your phone. You can do it with yourself or just with some friends. Get a party going, have a bit of fun with it, and then mail it to mail at weirdwackywonderful.co.uk dot uk, and we will put it on the start of the show for you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for that inspiring words, Bryce. (laughs) Yeah, no problem. Okay, we're going to get right onto our interview today. We've got a returning guest with us today. It is Mark Rees, the author of Ghosts of Wales, Accounts from Victorian Archives. We spoke to him a little while ago. He's brought out a new book now, and it's called The A to Z of Curious Wales. And there's some fantastic bits of information in there. Again, whether you're from Wales or whether you're from another part of the world, doesn't really matter, because you will find stuff that's really interesting to hear about this. And it may want you to come and visit our nice green land here. And then you can maybe pop in and see us as well. That would be absolutely amazing. Fan meetup. Yeah, exactly. Oh, that would be a really good idea, actually. Have a fan meetup. So it'd be us and another two people. Great. (laughs) (laughs) All two people who
2: listen. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Actually, do you know what? This is no word of a lie. I looked at Spotify earlier because Spotify have just released a new app. They've taken their analytics app out of the beta testing and they've now made it available to podcasters to actually be able to look at it properly. And over the last week, we've had thousands of listens on Spotify. Thousands, just in the last seven days. So... Yeah, I'm really, really impressed with the analytics just on Spotify, so that's really cool. Anyway, let's get on with the interview. Please welcome to the show author of The A to Z of Curious Whales, Mark Rees. Hello, Mark. Hello, good morning. How are you doing?
0: Very good, very good. Thank you, Sally. Nice to be back.
1: Yeah, it's nice to have you back. We really enjoyed the last time we spoke to you, and we had some amazing feedback from our listeners as well. I've got to say, it's probably one of the most entertaining and interesting shows, I think, that we've done, and definitely up there with my favourite. And I know I speak for Bella when I say that as well.
0: Well, thank you, Sally. It's not... uh... I don't set out to be a stand-up comedian or anything. No, no. It's good if, the, <laughs> if, the can, if the stories can make people laugh, that's, that's even better.
1: No, that's, that's really good. Uh, you've taken a little bit of a deviation from the ghosts. There are still ghosts in this new book, your new book being The A to Z of Curious Whales. Yep. There are a a lot of myths and legends that you talk about in there as well, and a lot of historical information as well. So a little bit of a change in sort of theme, but definitely, I think, would appeal to our listeners in exactly the same way, really, as the Ghosts of Wales book that you did. Because even being a Welshman myself, I didn't realise that there was as much... Rich history and legend, as there actually is, and you've definitely taught me a lot about Wales.
0: Hopefully, yeah. Thank you. That's that's what I set out to do. Really, is to, you know, the, the, there's no point boring people with the same old stuff. It was to find new, new quirky things to to let people know about. And and, and as you mentioned, it it's a, quite a bonkers mix of things, really, which which I like in a way, but it also makes it quite hard to explain. It's just here's a, a crazy collection of of weird and wonderful things, already from the past.
1: Going into some of the stories in the book. I love the fact that you talk about King Arthur and Merlin in this. I know that there's a lot to do with King Arthur and Merlin in Wales, also in Cornwall. In relation to the Bardsley Apple you discuss in the book, and it's link with the island of Avalon. Now, we work quite closely with actually Lake Avalon Entertainment, which is another podcast show that that we work with. And I know that they would love to know a little bit more about this story. So can you just give a little bit of an introduction into the Bardsley Apple story and how that links in with King Arthur and Merlin?
0: Yeah, Bardsay Apple is a. Uh, it's it's a very well, it's a unique. It's it's the only apple apple in the world of its kind, which was found on on the island. And and the island is really as steeped in in Arthurian mythology and and folklore. And some say you know his his boat is is sunk underneath. And another name for the Bardsay Apple is actually Merlin's Apple because Merlin is said to be sleeping nearby, sort of dead in a state of rest. Because I mean, part of the stories are that. Arthur and Merlin are both out there sleeping in, in various places across Wales, waiting for our wow. our darkest hour to come back to life and come back and save us. Some people might say that's going to be quite soon, but they're definitely <laughs> out there waiting to uh, to help us. But th- this apple, it was it was found on a tree which was growing up on the side side of a house, which, which which I believe is still there. And they've since sort of used this tree to to grow more of the apples, and and they sent it off to an expert to to be analyzed. If I can just find the, the description. It was a Dr. Joan Morgan who spoke to the BBC about it. She said again, you know, it's the only variety in the world of its kind. They're boldly striped in pink over cream, ribbed and crowned. Um, I haven't tasted them myself, so I can't say just how nice they are. But I I just quite I quite like the idea there's this unique food which you can only get from Wales, which is grown in Wales, and it's also linked with the whole Sort of Arthurian mythology again, you know, which, which comes from the country.
1: So, how does the idea of Avalon tie in into that in Wales?
0: Ava, well, Avalon is partly to do with the name, but I mean, I don't know if you know the sort of the King Arthur history, where you know he is the Welsh king or the king of the Britons who who fought off the the Saxon invaders. Even though nowadays, you know, it's pretty much been twisted, where he's seen as you know the king of England in some cases, mm. isn't he? Which which is which is incorrect. Avalon if you, if you translate it sort of the the Welsh version of it the Welsh language version it is the isle of the apple trees because aval is the Welsh word with with an f instead of a v aval is the Welsh word for apple so you know that that's where it all sort of t- ties in with Arthur again
2: even though i did the Welsh language that just surprised me a lot i don't know any of it anymore <laughs> <laughs> I didn't, even learn Welsh in Wales, in, I didn't even learn Welsh in Wales. I didn't even learn
1: Welsh in Wales. <laughs> I didn't even learn Welsh in school. So it just goes to show, doesn't it, that times are changing now and they are bringing the language back, which is good. So you'll have to excuse my pronunciation on some of these as we go forward.
0: I'm, I'm the opposite because I was in Welsh language education and I actually end up mispronouncing English words because a, a lot of the le, 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 le letters like V is, is F in Welsh and things. And so, yeah. yes, you have, have to excuse me if I get it the other way around.
1: Well, we'll help each other out. How's about that? <laughs> yes. Some of the stories that you kept in the book may actually inspire people to visit Wales. Have you contacted the Wales Tourist Board or anything about the book?
0: I, I haven't, but I, but I, again, I, re- I really hope that's the case. My my last book, which isn't really that weird and wonderful at all, was a book called uh, The Little Book of Welsh Landmarks. And it's one that, it, it's, it's ironic how these things turn out. I, I wasn't that enthusiastic about writing about it because it, it's much more dry. There's no, you know, there's no ghosts and weird stuff in it really. But it ended up being my best-selling book based on, you know, an initial hmm. sales um, and, and that is one that people definitely will pick up and read and come and visit. Th- this one, in, in some cases, might have the opposite effect. If they read about the ghosts of murderers running around, they might think, actually, we'll take a detour and not stop off at that place. <laughs> but yes, you know, I I hope, as we mentioned with King Arthur, you know, I, I think King Arthur is something Wales should be really proud of. You know, mm. I mean, this is our this is a global, a global you know creation which disney making cartoons about and it's from wales so these are things i think we should shout about a lot and hopefully people will will come and explore
1: well without going into detail i mean there's things in there that tie with like mount everest and there's something which i do want to discuss later on we won't do it now but there's even a, a military operation that goes on which is absolutely fascinating and there's so many things that actually in some way wales has played a part in that like i said it really did open my eyes so i think that will inspire people to come here As, i tell you what one thing i did enjoy was you talk about one of the oldest houses in the country or the oldest house in the country and you mention at the right at the end of it that actually it's a bed and breakfast and you can go and stay there <laughs> and i was just like oh man i've got to find out where this place is
0: <laughs> yes yes and I, the, the way they date these things the the, the terminology was all double dutch to me I, I had to do quite a bit of a, a bit of googling words to try to work out what was going mm. on there but it, it, it's absolutely incredible how you know a, a little piece of wood in a house can be used to determine you know and, and not just to you know to, to to the decade maybe or to the century to the actual year and not even just the year they can work out what season it was and they think it was actually in july of that year and it's just incredible it was how, something how like 1408
1: they do or something like that wasn't it it was the, the 1400s
0: yes yes yeah <laughs> top i had i don't know i'll have to flick to the yeah, page no, no, to get no, the no, exact no. date but it, <laughs> but it, it, it's old put it that way
2: yeah so getting on to some stories and some questions about them, in regards to the Caddicton murder stone, Yes, could you briefly explain what a murder stone is?
0: Murder stones, yeah. I mean, th- th- this isn't something which is unique to Wales. You, you can find them dotted across England and, and the UK, I think. But th- th- there were stones which were put over the bodies of people which, you know, as, as the name suggests, were murdered. But Murdered, and the the culprit, the murderer, w- was never found or was never tried for the crime. They, they served two purposes, really. I mean, if if you look at this murder stone, it's got in huge letters at the top, murder. It's it's like a like a big newspaper headline at the top, murder. So you you can't miss this. And what that did is, it almost served as a reminder to the the criminal or the murderer who'd done it that look, we might not have caught you in this life, but and and, and this is going back to a much more religious time, but you will pay for what you've done you know when when the final judgment comes when when you pass over you know th- th- there's no escape in your crime forever and and it also of course was a uh, sort of a last in memory to the person who had been murdered but yes it, it had that double sort of a meaning really of memory of the person who died but also to the criminal it was like pointing a big finger at them saying look what you've done and don't forget it because you know the, the man upstairs is not going to forget this one
2: right so it had quite religious connotations then
0: but very much so yes i mean th- these are going back to I mean, it's not something we do nowadays. It's something sort of maybe up towards of the early twentieth century when when Wales was a much much more Christian country. But but yes, you know that meant that they are they're they're quite tragic tragic gravestones really, which which serve as a reminder. And, and I, I think it's quite nice the one in in Caddicton, which I've included in the book. If if you popped to now, which isn't isn't too far from where I live, there there are still flowers on the grave now. People remember this, you know, even though you know centuries might pass. It's something which is embedded in the community in a way where you know a gruesome crime has happened and and the locals sort of remember the the the, in this case the lady's memory
1: you mentioned that you're doing talks about the book at the moment yep what seems to be the most popular of the stories that you you talk about when you're doing the rounds
0: well i've I've kind of got this reputation now as the ghost bloke (laughs) the the, the, the welsh ghost bloke and 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 what i find is it, it is that When I'm talking about this book, uh, I mean when I was I mentioned the little book of Welsh landmarks which I released last year. When I talk about that one, wherever I go, I end up talking about ghosts. So ghosts are a key part of it an uh, another thing which I'm quite interested in myself at the moment is curses and and cursed objects mm. and cursed things around Wales. Uh, and there's quite a few interesting ones, sort of within an hour's drive from where I live, that I like to, where, where possible, rather than just talking about something in the past which you can't look at. If I can stand next to the cursed object and point at it and say, "This is the thing which is going to." destroy your town or cause something bad then, then that, that's great you know and there's a, so a few examples around here like the uh the swansea devil which is a statue in in swansea museum there's the cursed wall of Portalbot on on the grounds of Tart steel uh steelworks and there's going back to merlin there's merlin's oak in carmarthen and so th- things like the curses are things I, I try and focus on because that's what interests me at the moment but i think w- whatever i do i'm always going to be you know the, the welsh ghost man
1: so this near Tata Steel then in Port Talbot what's the curse about with that then relating to that wall I actually had to do some electrical work on that site a little while ago and yeah I was just interested in whether I I brushed up against something I shouldn't have
0: (laughs) Well, I've got, the the good news is you you're in very safe hands. Oh thank God! I, I I love this one because this this is as you mentioned before these these are stories which aren't really out there and which people don't really know. But but I, I grew up in Putal, but this is sort of a story that I kind of knew from you know friends and family members and things but it's it's actually I should I should stress this it's it's actually on the grounds of the steelworks which is private property so please you know, if if you listen to this and you want to look at it get permission first you can't just walk onto the steelworks and i, I know from from experience i i was there i had permission to go there and even so when i took a photograph this big security guard just appeared from nowhere charging at me um and watched watched over my shoulder as i deleted the pictures until his boss arrived to say that it was okay for me to be there so it it is security is tight yeah yeah but this piece of the wall was once a part of margham abbey and margham abbey uh, i think a lot of people are familiar with margham castle and Margham country park now but that that once kind of sprawled out over the grounds where the steelworks are now and up, up the mountain side, and there's loads of ghost stories and ghostly monks and things connected with that side of it. But on the steelworks land, this one remaining piece of wall, according to the folklore, is where when the desolation of the monasteries happened and the, the last monks were kicked out of their property, the last monk to go, it is said, placed a curse on this wall. And he said, if this wall ever falls, this town will fall with it. Uh, it, it wasn't called but at the time, but he said you know, that this town is going to fall when the last bit falls down. And what, 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 is, what I think is really remarkable is that, you know, that, that, that's a lovely story, but the Mansell family who bought the land afterwards left that wall there they didn't knock it down and it's in quite a it's in quite an awkward place certainly nowadays because you know it passed into the the margham family and it got bought up by the steelworks and the steelworks have gone through you know there's british steel and tartar and chorus and all these companies have been there and they've all left this wall there and it's right outside one of the i'm not really up on steelworking, but it's outside one of those big plants where sparks and lava and stuff all fly out the blast um, furnace areas it, yeah yeah, some, some kind of dangerous work going on in there. And there's a lot of trucks that go back and forth carrying the steel or whatever material comes out of there back and forth along the road. And this wall is right on that route. And so what, what has happened is that, I think it was in the 70s, this wall started wobbling slightly. So rather than think, well, just just clear it out of the way, it's 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 a pain anyway, they actually put buttresses like you might see on a church up behind the wall to make sure it didn't fall down to keep it stable. And then they had a couple of near misses with the vans driving around. So then they built this barrier around it just to make doubly sure that, that this this curse doesn't come to pass. And it's, it's details like that that I love. It's not just a cursed wall. It's a cursed wall that, you know. T- Tartar are a major multi-billion <laughs> corporation. They're going out of their way to protect this this little piece of, you know, what what is? It's it's but folklore really. Yeah. But it, it's little things like that, which I think add, you know, it's a it's a bit of magic really to well, not just Talbot, to anywhere, to places that have these things. And so yeah, the curse, it was cast by this monk many, many, many years ago. Now Tartar keep it safe with these barriers. One interesting little bit, and, and this is going back to ghosts slightly, which, which I picked up. But when I was visiting the site, I was talking to the sort of the resident historian there, Mankel Graham, and he was saying that two men working late at night by the wall on some some crane type device noticed a ghostly white monk figure by the wall. And as a result, refused to do that job again. And they were given other jobs in the in the work somewhere, I believe. But what he noticed was that this monk that they saw was dressed in white. Now, everyone assumed this is the monk who cast the curse. And, you know, you're going back to the old stories. But that monk would have been wearing a, a brown habit like like monks did at the time. Hmm. What he also discovered in his research afterwards is that this wall, being so far away from the abbey itself, would have been one of the farm buildings that they, that they built. And working the farms wouldn't have been the... The, sort of the hardcore pious monks, they would have been off praying and doing what monks do. But they had lay brothers who did all the manual work, you know, the real work, you could say, for them. And the lay brothers would dress in white robes.
2: Wow. And I think ah. it's quite,
0: quite nice that, that that ghost story from men who wouldn't have known anything about this has kind of been sort of checked off the historical list.
1: Yeah, and in some way sort of corroborates the story.
0: Yes, exactly, yes, yes. Although you could say that anyone who sees a ghost usually sees a big white wobbly thing mm. don't they but but yes <laughs> I, there's not nice nice detail
1: i just pictured a snowman then you know <laughs> Um. <laughs> yes yeah or state buff marshmallow man exactly yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah it's quite interesting really that the idea that the curse actually cuts through all of the red tape and bureaucracy that maybe town planning departments may have maybe i might build a new shed in my garden and just curse it and then when they tell me to knock it down because <laughs> i didn't have permission just <laughs> just let them know there's a yeah. curse on it maybe it will stand the test of time after all
0: it will and it's <laughs> it's amazing how these things last a lot of these cursed objects you know from from an aesthetic point of view then they're, they're not the prettiest looking things but it's just the cool story. That's, although I'm sure your shed is lovely, but it's just the cool stories which are, which are attached to them. <laughs>
2: yeah. Well, the spiders love it anyway. Uh. <laughs> yeah. Going on from stories about ghosts, in mm-hmm. the section on Castle Koch, you mentioned a spectral cavalier. Yes, yes. Could you give any more information on that? Well, the, the cavalier,
0: that's a bit of a footnote, really, who, who is said to be visiting the castle in search of I believe its treasure or money or something which which he's left there but Castelf is a fascinating place for sort of ghost stories and things in general and part of it ties to the old castle which this one is built upon because this one is very much a fairy tale folly type building which was built in the in the Victorian times but you know there's been a castle on that site from long before all these kind of ghost stories trace back to uh, when he was owned by Ivor Bach, who, who is now the, the name of a rock club in Cardiff. <laughs> but back then he was very much a real man. And he was very worried about what would happen to his, his body and things when, when he died and in the afterlife. So we're gonna have to suspend our belief slightly for this story, but he, he decided to have two of his guards transformed into stone eagles to watch over his body when, when he laid sort of down underneath the castle after he died. And that happened. And when he died, he was put to rest underneath the old cast of Koch. And the two stone eagles were placed there to watch him. And lo and behold, two silly burglars did decide to try and enter his resting place and to steal his things. And these eagles are said to have sprung to life. Some variations, it gets quite grisly and that they rip the burglars to shreds and leave a bloody mess everywhere. But from that sort of old folkloric tale, we get all these sort of new new ghost stories springing up from it. Some say that, you know, maybe these these burglars are still roaming the place now. Maybe Evo Bach is still, maybe the eagles are still there. And now we have this cavalier who's also sort of lurking around looking for looking for whatever it is that he's left or lost there
2: quite interesting really how the different stories can spring up all around just the original one you find with a lot of places where you start with a ghost story and then it just spirals out of control
0: i think people take things off in different tangents and chinese whispers add their own little bits to it but yeah no cast cork i mean even without the ghost cast cork is a a fantastic place so you just walk around in awe in that place and and the ghosts just add that extra layer of of magic to it
1: always quite comforting especially because i work away a lot coming home and then driving down the m4 and seeing that on the right-hand side as you know you're heading further into wales it's it's a beautiful beautiful sight beautiful
0: building yeah i i I, I get the same feeling with what we were talking about Margam and the abbey because there's a little church Mm. up on the side of the m4 where again spectral monks are said to be seen walking along the m4 at night if you you look up on that part and i don't know if you saw the news story yesterday about in newport they've just put this absolutely gigantic welsh dragon on the side of the m4 there so oh, I think I anyone. Yeah. So next to me, drive past Newport. keep an eye, Well, you can't miss it. And I don't think there's a huge dragon there. <laughs> but I, I like the idea you now, if anyone sort of visits the country and they come over the Seven Bridge, they're going to get dragons and they're going to get fairy tale castles and they're going to get ghost monks and all these things all <laughs> on one stretch of road as they come in. You know, and, and that just, again, I suppose, just shows the, the, the curiosities which are out there.
1: Yeah, definitely. While we're talking about dragons, we can't yep. talk about Wales really without talking about the origin of the red dragon. Now, You talk about that in the book as well.
0: Yes, I mean, the dragon is, is it, I mean, you can trace it back a long way. I mean, the, the story I chose to, to focus on in the book is quite a bonkers one, really, which is rather than going back to the origins of the dragon, it, it's the last recorded sighting of a dragon in Wales. It's a really difficult one to explain, actually, in an interview. There was a period in the early 20th century, about 1910, I think, where some stamps were misprinted, which they had the king's head on at the time. We've got, we've got the queen's head now, but the king's head on at the time. And they were misprinted with a red dragon on top. And these things were taken out of circulation, but a few of them got out there. One man who lived in the sketty area of Swansea disappeared one day on his way to the university, and he was carrying a book. Now, this book was said to contain lots of old, weird legends about Wales, including stories about dragons. But he he just disappeared off the face of the earth. And a few days later, his wife received a letter which had one of these weird misprinted stamps on it of the king's head with the Welsh dragon on top. And in that letter, it it, it just said, look, don't worry about your husband. He's fine. And it was signed by the, this mysterious group called the Natives of the Welsh Dragon. And they also put her husband's signature on it just to prove that he was there and he was safe. And that was it. I mean, you're Back in those days, there weren't any any phones or mobiles or anything. She had to just sit and wait. And this man, as mysteriously as he vanished, just turned up again one day in Bryn Mill Park nearby from Skadi. With no memory of where he'd been or what had happened. But all he knew were that dragons were real. So by all accounts, he'd he'd seen a dragon wherever he'd been. And this native group in Wales had been keeping dragons hush-hush and keeping them quiet somewhere in the country. Now, this could, it's a slightly tenuous link, this could tie into the old origins of the story, because, I mean, if we believe there was such a person as King Arthur, King Arthur is said to have a dragon on, on his banner. I mean, it, did, it didn't look like the current one. And Owen Lindua, who's you know, very sort of famous, the last native uh, Welsh uh, Prince of Wales, had a golden dragon on, on his banner. And really, we can thank so it's it's the Tudor family who are sort of, of of Welsh origin, even though they went on to be sort of the rule England or to rule Britain, really did help to introduce the the dragon then as, as, a, as a more of a standard Im, image of wales yeah i mean it was much later on that we actually adapted it then as the flag and it's it's just become synonymous with the country now isn't it
2: absolutely absolutely one of two countries in the world with the dragon on its flag really hmm. there you go
1: you taught me something as well today <laughs> so every day yes, is a school yes. day there was a story in the book and that was a story of it's quite a tragic story actually of i'm going to say this
0: wrong beth Gallat. Is that right? With Gallet, yes, yes. No, that's very that's good, that's good. Oh well, thank you. (laughs) Yes, yes. Can
1: you tell us a little bit about that? Because the demise of the dog Gellut was tragic.
0: Yes, well, Beirth B- B- Gallet is, I mean, Beirth B- Gallet, one word, is the name of an actual place in, in Snowdonia, which is named after Gallet's grave. The word bathe is Welsh for grave, Gallet is is the dog's name, Gallet. So Beirth B- Gallet, the two words have been combined to make the name of the place. And that is where the grave now is. Now, if, if I tell you sort of the, the folklore side of it first, before we tear it apart and spoil the story... Right. <laughs> the story, which is, I mean, it's actually recorded on the grave. So anyone who visits Beth Gallatin can read the story and see all about it. But it goes back to King Llewellyn, I believe, but don't quote me on that who went out hunting one day and he left his faithful hound, Gallat at home to look after the baby while he was out and about. And he came home from hunting to find that the, the place was just just a, a bloody mess and the, the child's cot had been overturned, there was blood everywhere, and he saw the dog sitting there with blood all over its face and its feet, or the uh, paws rather than feet. and he naturally jumped to the conclusion that the dog had attacked his son and his heir as well you know this is this is a royal man so he just took out his sword lashed out at the dog killed the dog and and that was that it discovered that well he heard a baby's crying to begin with this helped him with the discovery and when he looked he found that the baby was actually unharmed in the overturned cot and what had happened is that a wolf had come into the house while he was away and brave Gallard had fought and killed the wolf and had saved the child's life, but by, by mistake he had then lost his own as a result when the prince came home. So that is the the horrible, horrible story which which dog lovers will hate. But the good news is it's probably all rubbish, so so that helps. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> It's believed that it was invented by, uh, of all people, a, a pub landlord back in the 18th, 19th century to try and drum up a bit more trade for the town. And it worked because it's still working today, people still go there today to visit this Grave for a dog which isn't underneath it. It doesn't really matter to me if it's true or not. It's a wonderful piece of folklore. It's a wonderful story, and it's reflected in the artwork. And there's a big grave there, you know. And there's statues of Gallat, and there's various dog-related knickknacks you can pick up in Bath Gallat. now as a result. Mm. So I, th- I think that's a great part of it. But yes, the, the town is named Be Gallat. I mean, there are some who think that even the Gallet in the name of the place isn't even the dog. They think it relates to a saint called Calet, which has been, been mutated to Gallat. But yes, that's the story. And th- there are lots of stories like this, all certainly over Europe, of this sort of tragic dog figure mistakenly killed by its owner. And this is probably the best example in Wales that
2: we have of it. In the section on the Curse of Bren, you mention yeah. that there's quite a lot of bees and wasps that can be seen fighting over one particular hill. Yes. Do you know of any natural explanation for that or is there none that you have encountered?
0: I don't I'll, I'll be honest the scientific side of it isn't something I dwelled too much on. But certainly I I have never come across any other armies of bees and wasps sort of meeting at dawn and fighting to the death before. So it sounds like quite quite an unusual <laughs> curse. I quite like that one as well actually sort of tying into pop culture quickly, but when I was writing this this was before Game of Thrones had finished and mm-hmm. there's the whole connection with Bran who is a character in this in the show for those who don't watch it. Quite a Prominent character who can be traced back to to Welsh mythology again. So part of me was just thinking, wouldn't it be cool to get Brad in here somewhere because he's he's on all the television screens at the moment and <laughs> and based on on a Welsh legend. And, and the best brand story I could find was this bizarre story of. oh, I should explain quickly where you know there's a site where the curse is said to be in effect and people go there and just find bodies of dead bees lying around or dead wasps lying around where they've been fighting. I, I haven't seen them myself, so I don't know what what the truth is in that. But there are there are newspaper reports. Out there, or this going on, anything
1: that kills loads of wasps is fine by me. <laughs> yes, yeah, well, yeah, so I'm team B. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Moving back to hauntings quickly, I'm, I'm sorry to sort of steer you back towards that. There are, of course, hauntings discussed in the book, and I love the story and the title as well of this particular story, The Bedrocking." Rocking Yes, yeah. What struck me about this story is that it involved a hardened, well, not hardened necessarily, you don't call it hardened, but a sceptic whose job was a solicitor. So you would think follows sort of the rule of law, if you like, and everything has to be written down and judged in a certain way and, and what have you, and yet you've got this person who openly was a skeptic who encounters these things happening to their child and who is then obviously converted to believing. Do you want to tell our listeners a little bit about that story?
0: Yes, yeah and no need to apologize about talking about ghosts that's my uh, specialist subject I guess now but this is a story that the last time I spoke to you uh, on the podcast I was talking about the Victorian ghosts Mm. and what, what happened is as soon as I finished that I was sort of on a roll and I went straight into researching Edwardian ghosts of the next period afterwards which fingers crossed will be a full book One day, But in the meantime, this is one of the stories that I loved, which I found in my research. And so I decided to put into into Curious Wales. It's a house in Lampeter on the main street in Lampeter, which I'm assuming is still there. I haven't worked at the specific house, but maybe I shouldn't actually. There's probably someone living there who doesn't want to hear this story. But there's a house (laughs) on the main street in Lampeter. And there was a boy being sort of terrorized by what, what we, we would now call poltergeist activity. I guess they probably wouldn't have put that terminology on it in the early 20th century. And it was his bed rocking at night. And his father was getting quite annoyed at what he assumed was his boy messing around and making a banging noise at night. And, you know, he'd do the old clip around the ear, as they would back then, to stop him. But one night, he just, he just lost his temper. This bed was banging away. He couldn't sleep. And so he physically grabbed the head of the bed to stop it. And that's pretty much the moment he sort of switched from being a skeptic to being slightly something of a believer when he held the top of that bed and he could feel like an energy pulsating from inside it. And he knew that the moment he sort of let go of his grip slightly or let his strength go, that bed would be off again, banging and shaking. So that was the first sort of unnerving moment. He wasn't alone. There were sort of maids and servants working in the house who'd been long going on about ghostly things. Certainly the one who looked after his son, I believe his name was Tommy, but looked after Tommy, who had been moaning for a long time about things, banging and moving and shaking this bed was not going to stop and they decided to move the boy downstairs in, into the living room to see if that did any good and it, it just it just carried on. So this ghost, poltergeist, whatever whatever you want to call it, appeared to be following the boy around the house rather than being confined to just the bed. As these things do, word spread around the community and by all accounts, the banging was so loud, you could stand outside the house and, and listen to these things going on. And Gee. this is another one of these remarkable stories from back in the day where it, it is said that, according to the newspaper reports, as many as 300 people were standing outside that house listening to the ghost banging away and the police had to come and actually move people out of the way to you know to get traffic to be able to to drive down this road
1: let's hope it was the ghost well they, maybe they were
0: just uh, <laughs> exactly yeah.
2: the
1: bed banging he, he, he and you've got 300 people outside yeah. <laughs> it's, it's gonna put you off choking
0: <laughs> yes. <stroke>, it <laughs> That was it. Either way, they were entertained. <laughs> yes, <laughs> but it wasn't just the people outside who wanted to watch the bed baggage. There was actually some some religious people who popped along. I think this sort of the highest authority was the Bishop of Swansea who came down. They were all pretty much of the same opinion that you know that this is something not of this world, something that was supernatural. All these things going on. There were some attempts to communicate with it. There were some accounts from psychics at the time, which I'm always slightly dubious about, sort of taken at face value. But they claimed that you know by using a series of taps and knocks and things they they communicated with this ghost so they could ask questions in the bed and objects and things would bang in reply but it's certainly something that you know had had Lampeter going go, in, go, go in crazy and uh, one quite interesting sort of bit at the end of the story or in the way I've presented the story is that one day one of the boys he he had more than one son had some friends around asked what this black lady was doing on the stairs, which you, you can probably see where this is going. There was no black lady, it was a ghost. But this is a ghost which the maids had seen walking around the house beforehand. And this sort of outside witness who knew nothing about it came in and then also saw this ghost. So they think that this polarised thing might have been connected to a black lady also in the house, or, or maybe it was two separate ghostly things. But we don't know because it was over 100 years ago now. Well, I, I guess we could go back and explore nowadays and see if they're still there. But yeah, that, that's the story of the bedrock and Spook in Lampeter.
1: Hmm. be interesting to know if they are. Are things still going on at that location today?
0: This is what I would say to a lot a lot of so the, so the ghost groups and people that I speak to is that these are stories which have first-hand accounts and were reported in the press at the time as being genuine. And so, you know, rather than paying £50 pound to run around some house somebody has said is haunted actually if you go back to the source there are some fantastic places out there which which aren't being looked into right now and i think this would be you know a great opportunity for someone if if, assuming the current owners don't mind a bunch of ghostbusters turning up and banging on their front door but you know these places are out there to be explored
1: yeah you make a good point because i tend to see you know obviously we're on social media and and we've got a lot of people that are from lots of different ghost groups that follow us Mm. and that we follow you know and we try and keep abreast of what's going on And, and i don't mean any disrespect to any of the groups when I say this but you tend to find that there's almost like a circuit you'll see one group will go to this sort of place then another group will go to the same place and it kind of it makes me wonder whether really the ghosts are sat in there going oh shit another one let's just (laughs) tell you what well let's just have a night off tonight shall we or you've got the other thing as well whereby if a ghost group for want of a better word an investigation group go into one of these places and they detect something and then they run their cleansing ritual or whatever it is they do to try and put the spirit to peace. Mm. Are they then ruining it for the next group that goes in, if you like, that paid their 50 quid and now are not seeing anything because all the ghosts have buggered off because they've been sent back to wherever they came from? It seems funny to me that, like you said, Mm. they would go to all of the places that seem to be hammered by these these organizations and not look into the investigation of actually finding things that are maybe lesser known but just as relevant.
0: Exactly. And, you know, like you said, from a commercial point of view, getting rid of the ghosts is a terrible thing to do. You should put a stop to that one. <laughs> I would imagine a house in Lampeter or, or, you know, even the fight in Bees and Wasps where, where Bran is said to be buried. I mean, that, that place is free. Just turn up for free and have a look. Yeah. You know, g- good luck to the commercial places, but there are other places out there as well. Yeah. And I think they're, they're, they're different. I, mean, I, I wonder, on on a tour of Cornwall recently and visited all all the sort of the famous haunted places of Bodmin, Bodmin Jail and Mm. and Jamaica Inn and these places.
1: They're making that into a hotel, by the way. Bodmin Jail, I believe.
0: They are, yes. They were showing me the plans, actually. Mm. It looks absolutely fantastic. But it's it's in the cells, which is going to be also creepy. Yeah. (laughs) And I think these places are absolutely fantastic. But you have to remember that they're they're also commercial places, you know, and having ghosts is good for business and certainly helps. But, you know, I I don't want to put them down. I absolutely love them and I'm I'm planning on going back there soon. Yes, it's just it's suggesting alternatives to people it's saying look you you don't need to raise a thousand pound to go on a ghost investigation you can do it for nothing just by finding these places out there which other people are are overlooking
1: yeah and i think social media is a way forward as well because if you ask people if they've got a haunted house or if they've got something going on you are going to get inundated with people you know whether they are people that are just trying to pull the wool over people's eyes in which case you're still going to go to investigate and find nothing or whether you're actually going to find someone who's legitimately got an issue and might actually come out with some decent footage or evidence or whatever
2: exactly yes yeah so jumping from the topic of ghosts to something i suppose a bit more concrete and factual i consider myself to be quite the star wars connoisseur if you will ah yes I, I can see where this is going. <laughs> and I did not know that the life-size version of the Millennium Falcon was actually assembled in Wales.
0: Yes, yes, the Millennium Falcon is is Welsh in, in that respect. Yes, the physical Falcon is, is Welsh, <laughs> yes. I think it was partly down to... I mean, the Millennium Falcon, the life-size thing... Well, life-size, but it, it's a big object. Yeah, And they had to find... A large enough empty space to assemble it and they had to have workers with the skills to actually make you know a big big giant spaceship and and luckily for Wales we landed the contract with well, I don't of George Lucas himself but with with Lucas films or whoever it was to make it in in Pembroke Dock because there were these large empty air hangers sitting there with lots of skilled people in in Pembrokeshire and it was done behind locked doors but it was a very hush-hush affair at the time nobody was allowed to know and and there were actually reports in in the newspapers at the time of some secret UFO going on in, in Pembroke Dock which which was kind of right. It was a secret <laughs> UFO, I guess, but it was one for for a Star Wars film rather than anything you might find in Area Fifty One. Say the one sort of downside of that story is when they finished building the Millennium Falcon, they had to drive it to to England rather than fly it. But there you, you can't get <laughs> everything, I guess. So. so it was
1: it was a UO then, not a UFO. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes. Yes. Yes.
1: I asked you this question when we did the last interview on the last show, and I'm going to ask you the same on this one, because you actually came out with some interesting information that wasn't included in your book last time. So I'm going to ask you again, what shocked you most about the research that you've done into this book, and what is your favourite story?
0: Favourite story is going to be the Swansea Devil, which I can can tell you about that one quickly if you'd like to know the background. Yeah, yeah, go for it. Yeah, please. Yes. The, the Swansea Devil, this is another one which, partly for sort of nostalgia reasons, because it's one I remember from my childhood, it's another cursed object. And it's one which, again, nicely links folklore with real life events. But the statue, it, it's a three foot tall wooden statue of a, a devil, so people say it's been painted to look like a devil. There are theories that it might be a Greek or Roman god, it might be Bacchus, it might be Pan, because you know it's got the sort of the cloven hooves and it's got the, the horns on his head. It, it looks like the modern idea of a devil, so it's been called the Swansea Devil. Now the folklore behind it, the, the story, is that there's a church in the middle of Swansea called St. Mary's Church, and in the 19th century, the tender went out to find an architect to, to build this church, and it was won by uh, a man called Sir Arthur Blomfield, who was a, a very respected English architect. He, he did the, the Royal College of Music in London. And you know, he landed it and did a fantastic job. Yet there was one architect in Swansea who was very, very annoyed about this. Possibly because he thought he could have done a better job and thought he should have had the work. Maybe he just, you know, didn't want these architects coming in here and taking jobs from me, whatever it was. But he he was upset and he decided to get his revenge on the church for for sort of spurning Him and and the job. So, when a plot of buildings next to the church became available, he bought up those buildings, knocked them down, put up his own buildings, which became known as the brewery buildings. And on that building, he plonked this carving of a devil staring at the church. And according to the prophecy, which I'm going to paraphrase slightly because I can't remember off the top of my head, he said, My devil is going to laugh and leer as that church burns to the ground. So, he built this building, put a devil on it, and said, My devil is going to watch your church burn to the ground. That's the folklore behind it. Then the Second World War came along. And for three days in the early 1940s, Swansea City Center was, was just pretty much wiped out. It was decimated in a blitz. And that is why there's so many ugly buildings in Swansea now, because you know, all the rebuilding that went on in the 60s. The church was one of the buildings that was wiped out, but the building next to it with the devil on was not. And that devil did, in fact, sit there, miraculously, some might say, watching as this church burned to the ground as all the right. building he was on avoided all of the bombing that was going on from, from the plains above. So that that is the so the folklore and then the reality which came afterwards. Now. Swansea was, was redeveloped after the war. Those buildings were replaced with a shopping center, and the devil went missing. And it wasn't until the 1980s, somebody said, what happened to that, to that devil? And they put a little notice in the newspaper saying, anyone know? And it's by some weird coincidence, somebody was on holiday from Germany who had grown up in Swansea, who remembered seeing the devil, and had seen it in a, a garage in Hereford, of all places. Wow! They went off to Hereford, picked up the devil brought him back to Swansea, some wrangling and some paperwork and things, and now it's back in the city. And ever since then, it's been in the shopping centre, looking back over the church again. And more recently, for sort of to, to keep it safe and to give it a lick of paint, I guess, it's gone to Swansea Museum now. It's on permanent display. So if anyone wants to go and see the devil or have selfies with the devil, then it, it's <laughs> sitting there in a, in a glass case for anyone to go and see. So that's, that, that's probably my favourite. And I've forgotten what the other question was now, because there was two of those, wasn't it there? was
1: what shocked you most when you were doing your research. What really sort of leapt out and shocked you?
0: One part of this book, which isn't my current sort of thing at all really is the more crime and punishment side of things. I had to include say 10% of the book is about the more grisly stuff, which is, you know, as I said, isn't my thing. And one or two of the more, let's say, sort of serial killer type stories, I, I left out of the book because I didn't want it to be that that dark. But I did find some horrible stories in the archives, which I sort of looked at and thought, well, it would fit, but Thanks, but no thanks. Yeah, I'm going to mm. stick to the ones which are slightly more, not quite as as dark as that. Of them, there was one story. I had, I had real trouble trying to work out where to put this in the book. So I, it's under L for Love Never Dies. And it's about, let me just find the correct name. It's uh, Sir John Price, 5th Baronet and Sheriff of Montgomeryshire. Now, this is a man who, to say he was unlucky in love is putting it mildly. He married three times. And when his first wife died and his second wife died, He had both of their bodies preserved and kept in his bedroom with him. So he was there with with, with these two bodies, which he kept with him permanently, and then got a third wife who also died. I mean, his luck must have been terrible, three wives in a row who died. The third wife objected Having the dead bodies of the previous wife in in the bedroom for for obvious reasons, <laughs> but but when she died, he then went down the route of trying to to contact them from beyond the grave, and and he went looking for some of those celebrity psychics at the time and things, and and it pretty much failed. I mean, what one really is just just out there sort of detail I picked up on is that when his second wife died, there was a holy man in the village who was pretty much on death's door, and he popped along to see it. I'm paraphrasing again slightly, but he said, you know, I'm, I'm obviously I'm sorry that you're going to die soon and it's very bad news, but do me a favor. (laughs) When you're up there, can you have a word of my wives uh, the second one especially and ask her to appear to me as a ghost and have a chat uh, for this, this man the, the concept of death was just, just non-existent you know these people were still with him but that one like I said it, it's not the most gruesome one that I found but it's probably the most gruesome one that I included is, is mm. the man who kept the dead bodies in his bedroom
1: that is pretty gruesome that's an understanding new wife if she lets you keep your old one around you know in, <laughs> in the bedroom isn't it that's, exactly uh... you
0: don't have good dusting around that thing do you so, yeah when
1: we're talking about this Bonzi Devil Day, you mentioned the World War. And I think this will bring us to the last question, if that's okay. And that is yep. the story about Operation Mincemeat, which I thought was just amazing. And the fact that the chap that is spoken about in this story is still the respects are paid to him today still. Can you just go over that for
0: us? Yes, I'm just going to find his correct name because I'm actually, I'm so glad this is an A to Z because it's nice and easy for me to find the, <laughs> uh, the page that I'm looking for with it. But yes, well, Operation Mincemeat is, I mean, there's also, the, the name comes from the name of a film, a British film, which came out in the 50s, 60s, I think, about an operation during the Second World War where the Allies wanted to, to trick the Nazis into sort of focusing on the parts they were not going to try an attack. And they, they wanted to sort of get the Nazis away from, or the bad guys, I guess, from away from Sicily. And so the plan they came up with was that they would get a dead body who would look like an officer and they would plant documents on the body of this officer, let the body float off into Spanish waters for the Spanish to find. And then knowing that the Spanish were were neutral, they would pass these documents onto the Germans to show the Germans what was in them. But then they would also pass them back to the British to try, you know, to keep everyone happy, type happy medium. Mm. And in these documents, It suggested that they were not going to go to Sicily. That was just a decoy. And they were focusing on Greece and Sardinia. And the ploy worked. They dropped this body into the water and off it went. And the Nazis then did not concentrate on Sicily. Rather, they focused more on Greece and Sardinia w- while the Allies then went to Sicily. Now, th- that is the story, which got made into a film. This was all done with the full approval of Churchill at the time and Eisenhower, who went on to be the American president, Eisenhower. But what a lot of people didn't realize because of the the Secrets Act is that that body that they used w- wasn't an officer, but actually a very unfortunate Welshman. This Welshman was called Dwendur Michael. His life was a mess. Um, his father died when he was very young. His mother died not that much longer after when he was maybe 30. And he found himself pretty much living as, as a tramp. He might have been a drug addict, but I, I don't want to say that, but he was certainly down in his luck. And he went off to London, as most people do, I guess, you know, to see if he could find any work, find his fortune. And while there, we don't know if it was an act of suicide or whether it was just a man who was sort of so pushed to the edge by starvation that he, he would eat anything. But in one of the places he was still... Sort of stay in one of the abandoned buildings he was staying. There were breadcrumbs which were mixed with rat poison to kill the rats. He ate the crumbs. And, and he died soon afterwards. And as a result of that, the, the doctors examining in, in the body found that because he died of rat poison, and again, I'm not really up on the gory scientific side of it, but that would leave his body in such a way that it had the same effects as someone who might have drowned.
1: It contained phosphorus, didn't
0: it? Yeah, so that body would, would easily double up as, as a drowned military person. And and that's pretty much what happened. As, you know, signed off by Churchill, he was dressed up in the uniform, taken off, and, and they dumped him in the water and off he went. But nowadays, of course when this body was found by the Spanish, he was actually given a grave in Spain which was dedicated to a fictional person. The, you know, the, the, the fictional papers they put on him, that was the body. Well, it was the, his body, but with with the wrong name on the gravestone. Mm. And so since then, they've added a line at the bottom which says, you know, R- really, or Michael. And, and I believe there's also some kind of memorial now back, back in his hometown as well, where he's been added to the, the war memorial. But it's it, it's a horrible, horrible story. But in a way, it's nice the truth has come out now to show that what, what really went on back during the Second
1: Within the story as well, you mentioned the fact that because obviously this chap had no family had no ties, Mm. it was easy to use that body really without anyone putting up any kind of fight for it and that it was released on the condition that the identity would never actually be revealed and you mentioned that it was only in 1998 when obviously the papers were up for disclosure that it actually came to light that it was this Welshman so I thought that was absolutely fantastic that you paid respects to Glinda Michael and the part that he wittingly or unwittingly paid in this effort, this yeah. whole war effort. Yeah, listen, it's
0: it's lucky these things do get released eventually, isn't it? So we can you know, pay our respects, even if it was unwittingly, as you said. But yeah, even yeah. so, it was a major part of the war. So
1: listen, I really thank you again for joining us and giving up your Saturday morning to speak to us. The book is fantastic. For our listeners, again, the book is The A to Z of Curious Wales, and we've been speaking today with the author, Mark Rees. It is available where, Mark?
0: All good bookshops, the standard line, isn't it? Yeah. All good bookshops, and that, that includes online as well as good old-fashioned physical bookshops which are obviously my preference but yes just do a search for it or pop into a shop and it's it's out there and yes thank you very much
1: i know last time you were on you shared your social media information as well so that if our listeners want to get in touch with you they could do you want to share that again
0: yeah it's at review Wales. that's review Wales, and it's the same on twitter facebook group instagram the whole lot yes if anyone wants to track me down then please do
1: Brilliant. Well, thank you very much. Thank you again for joining us, and we hope to speak to you again in the future.
0: Yes, thank you very much. Thank you very much. I'll probably speak to you about the next ghost book.
1: (laughs) Yeah, please do. Yeah, (laughs) definitely keep us in mind for that one, yeah. Yes. All right, brilliant. Thank you very much, Mark. Well, Bryce, that was your first interview. Well done. Yes, thank you. No, I really appreciate you stepping in to the breaches today. That's what—that's the word, isn't it? Stepping into the breach. I think so. Yeah, stepping into your breeches. That sounds <laughs> <rude>. That's different. <laughs> no, really do appreciate you stepping in today for your mum. Yep, helping us out because the
2: last thing people want to listen to is just me. Oh, I'm sure that's not true. <laughs> Everybody's going to have to be sure to send in an email and tell them now. Tell us how well Bryce did. That would be nice. Uh-huh. Ma- mail at weirdwackywonderful.co.uk.
1: And also, you can hit us up with anything that you want to. On that, if you want to send us any information, anybody that you'd like us to talk to, or any topics that you'd like us to cover, on Instagram we are Weird Wacky Wonderful Podcast, and on Twitter we are at the www podcast. On the next episode, we will be giving you information on how you can win the signed copy of the Haunted Yorkshire book that we covered last episode. Those have arrived in the post now; they are all looking pristine and new adorned with nick tyler's signature so listen for the next episode to find out how you can win a copy of his book signed by him lastly don't forget if you want to send us that intro send it to mail at weirdwackywonderful.co.uk and we'll put you on the top of the show other than that thank you very much for spending your time with us again today we really do appreciate it and bryce whatever you do please do stay weird, weird wacky and, and wonderful he's just as good as his mummy.